This morning we come back to this very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 6. It comes at the end of that chapter, verses 25 through 34. Very memorable section in the very memorable Sermon on the Mount by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the verses begin in verse 25 with the word, therefore, a kind of lifting, if you will, out of the discussion in verses 19 through 24, where Jesus was talking about where our treasure is and where we set our hearts. And he is helping us to think about uh, where that might lead us and what those challenges might be. And you may assume that those kinds of struggles are just for the wealthy, those who have so many things that they're trying to figure out a place to stash them and keep them and hoard them. But in reality, as we get to verse 25, we realize that this is as much a problem for those who have as those who have not. It's a, it's a struggle for the needy. It's a struggle for those who are questioning whether or not they will have It's a struggle for those who are worrying. They are enslaved as much as the rich might be tempted to serve money instead of serve God and to be a slave of money rather than a slave of God. At the same time, those of us who do not have much are also enslaved to material things in as much as we are enslaved to the worry about them, the anxiety that comes with them. Or the anxiety that comes from not having them. That's really what this section is about. In verses 25 through 34, Jesus uses the word anxious or the word worry, depending on your translation, five times in these few verses. And so he's addressing this issue of, if you might say, where your heart is, is where your anxiety is going to come from. The fears and the fretting that come from unknown challenges, pending threats, things that in some cases may never come to fruition. But in all of it, Jesus' clear command is, do not be anxious. There's no need. There's, no, there's nothing that's necessary, nothing that's commendable, nothing that is fruitful, Nothing that is edifying or glorifying to God that comes out of your anxiety. There are concerns and burdens that might confront our hearts, but those things can sometimes overtake us and grip us in such a way that they begin to bend our minds and hearts away from God. Or we could say it this way, they rise in our hearts when we have a distorted view of God, when we get to think the wrong way about God. The primary source of our anxiety is a wrong view of God, a wrong view of His character, a wrong view of His power, a wrong view of His purposes. Remember, when Jesus is talking about worry here, He's not talking about those God-centered sort of desires that we might have about having a Christ-like life or even seeing Christ formed in others. 
Those things truly do burden our hearts from time to time. But the worries that he's having, the worries that he has in mind here are those worries that come from not having God in your perspective, not having God properly framed in your mind. The kind of anxiety that comes from embracing what is essentially a secular, materialistic view of the world. That is ungodly worry. That is worry that does not glorify God. And so, as we begin to spiral down into anxiety, it's critical for us to reestablish a right view of God. And today, we come back to this passage and the words of Christ that help us to do that. Let me begin again our time just by reading these verses as we uh, take a look at them again. Beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arranged like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You remember we started to look at this last week and take note of five explanations from Jesus about worry and anxiety, five explanations about why anxiety is the wrong answer to your problems and how to establish uh, and remedy your perspective. And we looked last week at the first two of these in verses 25 through 26, worry underestimates God's power to provide. He points us to the birds of the air and how God takes care of them and, and, and ask us, are you not of more value than they? He's created you, not them, in his own image and designed you to glorify him in a unique way. And for those of us who are in Christ, he's even redeemed us and made us his own children, having adopted us into his family. Surely he will take care of his own children. And then second. We saw in verse 27 how worry undermines the futility, or excuse me, underestimates the futility of fearing the future. Jesus says, what is it going to do? It's not going to prolong your life. It's not going to add one cubit to your lifespan. 
All of those things the scripture tells us over and over again are completely in the Lord's hands. You have, you've not been given the privilege to determine your lifespan. God reserves that for himself. And so you cannot add or contribute anything to your survival, he's saying. Not by your health regimen, not by your retirement planning, not by your worrying, not by any of that stuff. And so worry and anxiety accomplish nothing. It does nothing to actually change the things in the future that are out of your control. It serves no real purpose. In fact, if it does anything, it makes you less productive in the moment of what you're currently grappling with. All of that brings us to a third explanation of why worry is the wrong response to your problems, which you find today in verses 28 through 30. Worry underestimates God's commitment to our care. Worry underestimates God's commitment to our care. And you'll see there in verse 28, Jesus moving from the illustration of his provision for birds to the illustration of now flowers, he shows us the special care and provision that God has for us. Why are you anxious about your clothing, he says. Consider the lilies of the field, which by the way may not even be lilies. There's some debate about whether or not this is talking about uh, wildflowers or whatever it might be. And you'll notice down in verse 30, he refers to these as simply the grass of the field, which makes some people uh, question whether it's really lilies. But really what he says is applicable to all flowers. It really doesn't matter. He wants to paint in our minds this picture of a field and all of the blooms that cover it in the spring And the beauty that comes out of that as we gaze upon it. And he invites us to consider what's taking place before our eyes. He wants us to think about how these flowers grow and and the process that they go through. And he wants us to really think about three qualities here about these flowers. First of all, about their beauty. Their bloom, if you will. They are They are absolutely magnificent, whether it's from a distance and you're taking in all the array of colors or when you uh, get up close, you are mesmerized sometimes by these things all over the world and throughout all time. Flowers have been indelible uh, sort of symbols of beauty for humanity. They're universally recognized as some of the most beautiful things in creation because they reflect some of the basic patterns of beauty that God has built into creation. They sort of define for us, if you will, some of the basics of aesthetics and what makes something beautiful. The petals themselves, flowers generally have a sort of a symmetrical uh, uh, balance unless there's some sort of defect or a deformity or, or, or infection or or some sort of disease that comes to it by, uh, by, by uh, insects. Uh, flowers naturally have either radially or bilateral symmetry. The petals are essentially the same size, so they not only have symmetry, but they have balance. Even in zygomorphic flowers, there's a sort of an even plane to both sides of the pattern. 
And there's even sort of numerical relation between all of the parts. And so you have this sort of structural beauty that's embodied in every one of these blooms. Every one of them, when you, when you gaze at them, and there are whole studies uh, that are sort of concentrated just on the unique and, and, and at the same time varied patterns of petals on flowers. As a rule, they're highly colored with blues and purples and reds and orange and whites and yellows or mixtures of them even in between. And they have contrast, which is another basic principle of beauty. They have balance and contrast. You don't find on any flower green petals with green leaves. There's always some sort of variation there in the color among these flowers. Even when you look at them under a microscope, they show these beautiful hexacons that are, uh, that are embedded in the petals of the flower, uh, flowers, which themselves, the hexacons, are ornamented around the boundaries with these sort of inflected loops. So there's beauty at the macro level, at the microscopic level. They're just magnificent creations, every one of them. And of course, every one of them having sort of their own unique qualities apart from each other. And all of these God has built into the design of these flowers. He designs every one of them. And we're captivated by the beauty of all of them. I mean, we would love, I think every one of us would would feel so fulfilled if we could just create three or four such beautiful things in our entire lifetime. God does millions of them every day all around us on different sides of the globe, different hemispheres, different seasons. And so God wants us to consider the, 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 the beauty, to really stop and think about how magnificent these little flowers are that just sort of pop up all around us and fill our world with beauty. But secondly, he wants you to consider how they got that way. They do nothing, he says. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't spin wool into thread. They don't weave patterns of clothing for themselves. They don't work on a loom. They basically just take in sun from the sky and moisture from the ground. They may produce a little bit of pollen, but it's spread by wind or by insects. They are some of the most so some of the most passive organisms that you could think of on the face of the earth. They don't really do anything elaborate to create the beauty that they have. And yet God, so concerned with their beauty, so concerned with the beauty of his creation, so consumed to make all of the intricate little details the way he does, he forms every one of them. That's how intimately concerned he is about every one of them. In fact, Jesus tells us in verse 29, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. He compares these things to the best-dressed man in the history of Israel. Solomon was was lavish. You remember in 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba comes down, or excuse me, comes up from Ethiopia to visit 
uh, uh, Solomon, and she remarks, among other things, about the lavish wardrobe of him and his officials. She'd never seen anything like it anywhere. And yet, even in Solomon's glory, he didn't wear anything like the magnificent beauty of these petals. God clothes the flowers of the field in nicer garments than Solomon, and he does it every day. He creates it over and over and over again, the most exquisite shapes and colors and shades and textures. All of that. Third, he invites us to consider the transient nature then of these flowers. Verse 30, he says that they're just grass at the end of the day. They're just grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Meaning, in those days at least, the, the, the ladies would typically bake bread in these dome-shaped clay ovens. And Israel, as you may know, is not a place that has an abundance of firewood. And particularly when they wanted to heat the ovens very quickly, they would go out into the fields and literally pull up these flowers and all of the tall grass and throw them in the oven and poof, in a matter of minutes, they would be burned up, creating heat for their oven. And the point of all this is the utter transient nature of these magnificent creatures. I mean, if we, if we spent the time ourselves to create something like that, it would be tragic to us if someone just threw it in the fire. And yet Jesus' argument is, If God is so intricately concerned and focused on creating this beauty all around you, how much more do you think he's concerned about you, about your clothing, your your basic clothing, if not basic, even standard clothing? He's sort of arguing, if you will, from the lesser to the greater. If God has made such sort of lavish beauty to clothe the plants that die in days and have no spiritual value, how much more you? You remember back in verse 26, he refers to God as your heavenly father. Down in verse 32, once again, refers to him as your heavenly father. Father, all of this reminding you of the unique relationship if you are in Christ, that you're no longer just one of God's creations. You're no longer just a creature sort of wandering and roaming around the earth. You are now adopted into the family of God. And now God is your heavenly Father. And so there's even a greater expectation that's rightful for you to have. That your heavenly Father would provide for you. Another way to say this is if God has already done all that He's done to provide for your eternal redemption, He's already proven that you are that precious to Him. He has already sent His most precious gift in Jesus Christ. If He makes all of that effort... How much more would he show concern 
for you. If he makes that kind of effort to beautify the flowers which are burned up and he lets them be burned up in an instant, how much more will he clothe you? Very similar to what Paul says to you in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? So if God's going to give you the greatest gift possible and, and He'll show Himself in that kind of way, willing to sacrifice, willing to pour out His grace, do you think somehow He's going to suddenly become miserly in the distribution of His resources? Do you think somehow He's going to change His character? suddenly be all worried about some limitations that he might have and not wanting to sort of to, to let go of something he's hoarding for himself. If he was already so generous as to give you his own son, do you not think he would also give you other gifts? You don't really think that God who makes such exquisite garments and coverings, if you will, for flowers every day, do you think he's so unwilling or unable even to clothe you? See, the deficiency is not on God's part. The deficiency is in your faith, which is what Jesus says at the end of verse 30, O you of little faith. It's what he says five times throughout the Gospels, always in reference to his disciples and their basic concerns about food and clothing or just basic protection from God. Five times he says it to the disciples, oh, you of little faith. How, how in the world could you not have this basic principle down? Now, he's obviously not promising that you're going to have all the cutting-edge fashions. Obviously, his first-century listeners, that was not their primary concern. Even in our own day, when clothing and luxuries are so widely available, God's point here is not going to be that you're always going to be the sharpest dressed or the most sort of uh, lavishly provided for in your neighborhood. But what he's saying is God's always going to provis- uh, sufficiently provide. Even down in verse 34, as we'll see in a moment, he doesn't look at life as, as having no trouble. In fact, he says sufficient for today is its own trouble. He's not suggesting that life is just going to be this sort of constant uh, overflowing cup of abundance. And don't make a mistake here when he's talking about these flowers. He's not suggesting that somehow you should have a mystical view. That God, that you ought to be looking for God to always sort of provide through your pacifism. As if, he, as if he's just going to do this in some sort of miraculous way. He's not suggesting that you plant yourself, if you will, and do nothing like a flower. Some people have that um, what, uh, you know, in, at least in scientific terms, we might call sort of a God of the gaps mentality. Well, they take that 
in another way and apply it even into their own life where they only look at God as operative in those gaps or those areas between natural law. They only look at God as, as active whenever he's doing something that might be unexpected or surprising or what we might think of as miraculous. In other words, they only look at God's activity in the gaps. But he tells us in his word, and we talked about this last week, that God is at work through all things. I mean, he's working all the time. He's working through your work. That provision comes even through normal uh, sort of routines of labor and, and, and the time you invest. Even the work itself God has given to you, not just really as a means of providing the primary, the primary, if you will, the purpose of work is something to be done really as an act of worship to God. But through that act of worship to God, your primary sort of objective in that work isn't your provision, but through that work, God still provides. He provides. He gives you the opportunities. He gives you the capability for work. He provides you with the resources, and He's glorified by the way that you show your craftsmanship and responsibility and productivity. And then through all of that, God is at work. And when at the end of the day, he provides through that work, it is just as much by his hand as if it dropped out of heaven. So this is not a call for you to do nothing when you are sort of in a time of need. But it is a call for you to trust God that no matter what your circumstances, he's going to provide. Whether he's going to provide through opportunities for work or whether he's going to provide some other way, he's going to provide. So even when you're in a situation where your best efforts aren't enough, God sustains. He's able to take care of you. He spared no beauty in clothing the flowers. He's more than able to do that with you. He spares... Uh, no sort of resource to take care of the birds. He's able to do that for you. And then a fourth explanation of why worry is the wrong response to your problems in verse 31 is it underestimates God's knowledge of your need. It underestimates God's knowledge of your need. Jesus refocuses our mind on the questions that he's addressing here about worry and anxiety. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So when you are finding yourself consumed with these kinds of questions and gripped with worry about them, whether you intend it or not, there's the suggestion that God either is not aware of your problems or he's aware of them and he just doesn't care. Your anxiety is an indication that you're not thinking rightly about him, that you're thinking about him as limited, finite, You begin to think about God the same way you think about yourself. You, we would say it this way, 
you form God after your own likeness. As if he's limited in his resources. He's limited in his knowledge. He's limited in his concern and love and care. Or any of those things. Listen, God isn't like you. Thankfully. He's not like me. He's not like anything in this finite world. He is unlimited in his power. His love is infinite. His care for his own children is infinite. And guess what? His knowledge is infinite. He's so infinitely concerned about you that he was willing to send his own son to suffer humiliation and crucifixion on your behalf. And he's promised that by his power, all things... The the complete design with all of the individual and collective details of your circumstances, He is working them together for your good. And, And that is the profound providence of God, that not one single disadvantage, not one single hardship goes unnoticed. So that even if a a hair of your head falls to the ground, God takes notice of that. The scripture says. So in the morning when you're brushing or combing your hair and you look down in the sink and you see some hairs there. I know some of you haven't gotten there. Some of you are already past that. But for some of us, we're combing and brushing our hair and we see those hairs down in the sink. It ought to be a reminder to you that God's already counted every one of them. That's how concerned He is for you. Every hair that falls, He knows. So He's infinitely concerned. He's deeply aware. And He is at work bringing all of these things together for your good. The things that you perceive to be in your control and the things that you perceive to be out of your control. sad reality, however, is when we get into troubles, we kind of revert to practical paganism. We become like the Gentiles, Jesus says, or the pagans who seek after all these things, uh, things that he just mentioned. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And the word seek is an intensified word for desire. Uh, So yeah, they have a strong desire, these Gentiles do. They're consumed with interest in these things. They're plagued by constant questions. They're absorbed in the aspiration for these things. That's what defines their life. And Jesus could be simply pointing out that this is their basic materialistic worldview. Life for them is defined by this materialism. And so they are tossed to and fro through all the ups and downs and the variations of their circumstances. And they they spend all of their fleeting years chasing after these things which the moment they perceive or think that they've grasped onto them just fade away. You know, as a pastor, I've had the probably more opportunity than most to be with people at a hospital at the moments, the last few moments of their life. 
And the reality is they're just minutes away from their last breaths. And I've often been struck by the number of people who spend those last few minutes of their life trying to cough out a few last statements about their stuff. They're about to pass into eternity. And all the things that they own will be no, no longer an issue. They're not going to be a concern. That stuff will not go with them. It won't matter. And yet all they can do is think about who gets this. Don't forget that. Remember to take care of this. That's their world. It's what their life revolves around. They are on the doorstep of eternity when the memory of all of these things will quickly fade and all they have in their soul are these things. Not the condition of their soul. So many people go through life just consumed with interest in these things. They're materialists. It's all they have. Or they might be pagan idolaters. They form some idolatrous religion around trying to stir their gods to give them these things. Or more likely, they're some sort of animist, which is probably most of the world, who are always trying to avoid sort of doing whatever taboo might be in their ritual to balance out the spirits around them. Every location, every object has some sort of spiritual essence or balance. Everything, whether they are conscious of it or not, they think of everything as animated, as having some sort of spirits that are out there to get you. And so they kind of independently go through their life until they upset one of these spirits and then they are so consumed trying to placate patch up things in order to avoid some curse or balance out some bad karma. That's the natural bent of the world. That's the way they live their life. And it's all about their stuff. But the true view of the world is that the creator of the world is imminent and all-knowing and all-caring. And he not only created the world, but he sovereignly controls it. And while the creation that he made has rebelled against him, he established a plan for redeeming that creation that has rebelled against him and reconciling it to himself. And he's done it through the greatest sacrifice of himself on the cross. And so for those who are in Christ... We have the comfort of knowing that he's infinitely concerned about us, that he's deeply aware of our struggles and our pains, that he's at work in all of our circumstances, and that he's able to work all of these circumstances together for our good. That's the knowledge that transforms our worries into remedies against anxiety. Fifth, 
Jesus gives us this last explanation of why worry is the wrong response, which really kind of builds on all this. Worry undermines our focus on present priorities. It undermines our focus on present priorities. In contrast to the Gentiles, in verse 33, Jesus tells us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and the food and the clothing and the provisions. All that stuff's going to be taken care of, he says, by your heavenly father as he works all these things for your good. So if you're going to seek anything, if you're going to have anything that is a consuming interest in your heart, if you're going to have anything that is you are sort of absorbed, aspiring to, Let it be God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And so you have basically one job assignment with two objectives. God's kingdom, first of all, which obviously is not his eschatological kingdom, his millennial kingdom. That's something that's still in the future. Uh, He's referring to what we might call the mediatorial kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, which Paul even mentions in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's the kingdom He's talking about. It's the opposite of that domain of darkness. The kingdom of God, as Paul says in Romans 14, is righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So it's the opposite of the domain of darkness. It's a place of truth. It's a place of peace. It's a place of joy It's a place of light. Or if you want to say it another way, the kingdom of God is the exaltation of Jesus Christ in all things. It's the exaltation of His glory, the exaltation of His wisdom, the exaltation of His name. That is what is on our heart. Secondly, our second objective in our job description is the righteousness of God, which obviously is intertwined with His kingdom, but that righteousness has already been defined for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, this whole sermon is about our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees, right? So we've looked at it. It is the work of God to help you lay aside anger, to resolve conflicts peacefully and quickly, to deal with sexual impurity in your hearts so that you can live faithful lives with your loved ones. It is keeping your word. It's being ready and eager to forgive. It's not retaliating against evil. It's loving those who are opposed to you and your enemies. It's going the extra mile to serve those who are around you. It's all of those things. These are the things that you're supposed to seek first. Which, by the way, don't think about that as sequence. He's not talking about you seek those things, and then after you seek those things, then you can seek everything else. It's not an issue of sequence as much as it is an issue of primacy. You're seeking those as the primary thing through which everything else you're seeking. So your job, your relationships, your social interaction, your education, whatever it might be, all of those things now are avenues 
through which you pursue your primary concern, which is God's righteousness and God's kingdom. That means that your greatest desires are for the exaltation of Christ through all of your other pursuits. And your greatest desire is for Christ's likeness or righteousness through all of your trials. So your primary pursuit isn't the material things of the materialists who are around you every day. That's what the pagans seek. It is that even through your needs and even through your hardships, your greatest yearning is for righteousness. To have Christ formed in you. Listen, that gives purpose to the trials. That gives purpose to the hardships. It gives purpose to the privation. God is working something so much more valuable than the materialistic things that you seek. This is why James says you're to count it all joy when you fall into various trials because you know that the testing of your faith is supposed to produce something deeper, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, it's in trials and in times of need that people actually begin to think that God is far away, that He's distant, that He's not listening, that He's not concerned. The reality is He's very concerned. But He's just concerned with things that are so much more important than the things that you're concerned with. He's actually concerned with the deepening of your faith and the deepening of your character and the building of endurance in your life. James 5 says, We rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So when you frame the right picture of God in your heart and mind, it drives out the worry and anxiety in the midst of trials and it refocuses and reprioritizes your heart on the exaltation of Christ and on the formation of His righteousness in your life. And when you begin to realize that kind of character and that kind of righteousness is formed only through hardship, then you're actually welcoming the hardship. Do you realize Hebrews 5 tells us that Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered? And do you think that you're going to do any better without suffering? Do you really think that you're going to learn obedience Faster 
and quicker. Or that somehow you don't need those hard lessons the way that Christ needed them for you to learn how to obey. So worry and anxiety just undermines all of that. It, it creates this unwelcome space for God to work those things in your heart. Or we might say it gives evidence that your heart is an unwelcome space to the right view of God. And Jesus' instruction is for you to seek righteousness through whatever hardship you might face. Replace your worry with the exaltation of Christ and, and the embracing of His character and God will add to you whatever you need. He'll provide. It is His promise. He gives purpose through the suffering. And you can see in verse 34, suffering is in view. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. None of this that Jesus is talking about, none of this sort of promise of God's provision is any kind of suggestion that you are not going to ever have to face trouble. He he understands that that is a part of your life. But here's the difference. If you have the eternal redemption of God in your view, it gives purpose to your suffering. It gives purpose to your hardship. If you didn't have that, then your hardship and your suffering would be meaningless. And guess what? Everybody suffers. Everybody goes through hardship. You are not going to be spared that. You may have not suffered very much or you may think that you will be spared it if you are uh, maybe relatively young, but I can guarantee you, as Job says, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. And so you haven't necessarily had to work through some of these things maybe, But Jesus is telling you that when you have the right view of God, it adds purpose to the suffering that you are going to face. Otherwise, you're going to face a purposeless hardship, a meaningless suffering in your life. And all you have to answer it is your materialistic perspective. So don't take thought for tomorrow. Don't be anxious for tomorrow tomorrow, which obviously he's not talking about just the next 24 hours. He's talking about anything in the future. But by using this language, focuses our heart or focuses our mind, I should say, on those most imminent fears and those those most imminent threats. So trying to guess how things will turn out. Worry about all of those future problems. Concern, it does not help. And he's not talking about, as we said last week, good plans. Sitting down and writing out a plan, you know, if this happens, we'll respond this way. If that happens, we'll respond that way. But not allowing your heart to be consumed with the fear of all the potential negatives that could come your way. When placed in the Lord's hands, He takes care of those things. And He works them all together for your good. Your challenge is to redeem your trial and to redeem your trouble by seeking first, by prioritizing 
the righteousness, the endurance, the character, the faith, the depth that God wants to work in your heart. So we look at troubles differently than the materialistic world because we have quantitatively different goals than the materialistic world. Our goals are eternal. They're kingdom-oriented. They are oriented around our Heavenly Father. And we're able to face them with the security and trust that He'll take care of all of our needs. And so secure in all that, we embrace and we welcome whatever the Lord wants to do in our hearts. And we seek to exalt Christ. And we seek to give our attention to the work of the kingdom. And we pour our resources into the eternal things. Knowing that the resources we have all come from Him anyway. Some of you here, you, whether you want to admit it or not, you've subtly drifted into that materialistic worldview. It may not have happened overnight, but you have not reframed your life and your existence through the eternal purposes of God. You've fallen into the pattern of the pagans around all of us whose life is tossed here and there by all of their ebbs and flows who are trapped in the domain of darkness. And anxiety and worry has begun to close in on your heart and grip you. The gospel tells you today you can be free. You can be free. God can remove your worry and concern not just about eternity. He can remove your worries and concerns in this life. But He asks you to place your faith in Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the invitation of God in your life today that you'd place your trust in Christ and see God work in your life. Well, let's stand together as we're dismissed by a word of prayer. If the Lord's working in your heart today, we'd love to hear about it. When we dismiss here in just a moment, down the hallway to the right, we have a visitor welcome center. If you're a first-time visitor, please feel free to stop by. Or if you're here this morning and you know the Lord is working in your life, please stop by. Give us a chance to pray with you, to hear what the Lord is doing in your heart and life. Father, we're so grateful for these reminders. They're truths that cut through the fog of our concerns and they lift the weight of our worry. They help us to see that you are the ever-faithful Lord, always giving whether it is providing our material needs or through our troubles, 
providing for us the spiritual benefits that you have ordained for us. And that's our priority, Lord. We do seek primarily above everything else to be conformed to Christ. We pray that you would do that in us and help us yield to that work. We know that you are our God and there is no other. We know that you're aware of our needs and we know that you are good, working all things together for our good. And so, Lord, we gladly place ourselves in your care. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.